It's Friday, August 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Uber and Lyft will continue operations in California. An appeals court has allowed the ride-hailing companies to continue treating their drivers as independent contractors, while an appeal works its way through the court. Uber and Lyft are hoping that a proposition on the November ballot will make them exempt to AB5. Fez Siddiqui, tech reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, as kids are returning to school in various forms, whether it be in-person, hybrid, or online learning, many are experiencing a level of anxiety with how different things are during the pandemic. Psychologists suggest that parents need to keep calm and listen to their children's anxieties and enforce good routines of mask wearing and social distancing. Andrea Peterson, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us with tips on how to manage back-to-school anxiety. Finally, amid accusations of racial insensitivity, sexual misconduct, and a toxic workplace, The Ellen DeGeneres Show has overhauled the senior production team and fired three top producers. Ellen herself delivered the news to staff over a video conference call. Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety, joins us for how The Ellen Show is trying to clean up its act. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There was some speculation that what they were doing here was they were trying to hold this over customers' heads by saying, you know, you don't get our service unless you agree to the proposition that we're putting on the ballot here. Joining us now is Fez Siddiqui, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Fez. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about the situation in California with Uber and Lyft. There was a law known as AB5 that was passed some time ago that basically said people working in the gig economy, specifically Uber and Lyft, needed to classify their workers as employees, not independent contractors. And for Uber and Lyft, this posed a whole host of different problems. Hiring them in in an official capacity took all sorts of steps. Uber and Lyft, for their part, said, you know, we're going to have to shut down operations because we can't meet these criteria. We can't do it. And they're waiting for a proposition in November for voters to vote on that basically would make them exempt. So they're kind of playing this game. And uh, in the meantime, Lyft said they were going to shut down operations in California. They were waiting for a judge's decision uh, to uh, put an injunction on all this. There's all sorts of breaking news going on with this. So, Fez, help us uh, break down what's going on. So it looks like the appeals court has just granted a stay uh, on the initial ruling. That is going to allow Uber and Lyft to continue operating in California while the court considers Uber and Lyft's appeal. I'm quoting from the language the appellate court posted. They said the petitions are granted and the preliminary injunction has stayed pending resolution of Lyft and Uber's appeals. You know, they, they basically have to agree to that. And then it looks like the crisis here is averted. And it doesn't say for how long. I mean, they've been wanting to hold out till the election, till the November election. So, I mean, this is presumably going to take them all the way there. If Uber and Lyft keep their word, they are going to keep operating in California. You know, there was some speculation that what they were doing here was they were trying to hold this over customers' heads by saying, you know, you don't get our service unless you agree to the proposition that we're putting on the ballot here. But, um, you know, if Uber and Lyft keep their word, it looks like they're going to continue operating in California. For how long is unknown. It looks like this resolution is stayed pending the appeal. Who knows how long that could take. Tell me a little bit more about AB5 and why this has caused so much problem. I know it's about whether a worker is employee or independent contractor, but why haven't these two companies been able to make the change in their business model? The companies say that 
what this resolution did is, is basically it's forced them to adopt a model that is in conflict with the type of business they run, which relies on this large pool of independent contractors. It requires them to basically staff as many people as possible so they, they can keep wait times short. They can keep fares low. So this is why they argue AB5 is in conflict with their business because they prioritize convenience over basically anything. So they would have to retool. They would have to build out a whole new mechanism for employment. Uber is considered franchising, for example. It would just change a lot about how the business is run. It's been a tough time. Obviously, we know the coronavirus pandemic is ongoing still. They said that ride share bookings have fallen 75% or more during that pandemic. So the business was already taking a hit to begin with. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this would have been an opportune time if there ever was one for them to run this kind of service suspension. But rides are down substantially. 75% is right um, more in some areas that have been even harder hit by the pandemic. So this would have been the time for them to do it without losing too much business. What do we know about how drivers really feel about this whole mess? You know, it's sort of a mixed bag. I mean, the, the thing that you have to keep in mind is a large proportion of the rides is done by a very small pool of drivers who do, you know, most of the, these are the drivers who are treating it as full-time work, let's say working 40-hour work weeks. And uh, if you were to poll or survey that group of drivers, I think you'd come out with a very different impression than if you were to look at the people who are doing it. It's maybe a hobby, maybe to uh, make a little extra cash on the side. So while there hasn't been any scientific polling on this as far as I've seen, it seems that if you ask drivers, would you like to have health insurance? Would you like to have a minimum wage guarantee? Would you like to have a guarantee of sick pay? Would you like to have unemployment benefits? Those things would prove very popular, but the issue of flexibility is basically at front of mind for a lot of drivers. Fez Siddiqui, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Take care. Psychologists had some really great advice for parents on how to sort of help their kids manage their own anxiety. And the first thing was that parents need to manage their anxiety. But basically, you know, especially for younger children, you know, for parents to be able to sort of have this sense of calm and confidence. Joining us now is Andrea Peterson, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks for having me. There's a lot of kids that are going back to school, some that have already started, some that have not. And it's weirder than ever this time around, obviously, because of the coronavirus pandemic. School districts around the country are doing it differently everywhere. Some are back for in-person instruction. Some are doing hybrid models. Some are doing online only to begin the year. But there's a lot of anxiety that is associated with this, even for kids. Thankfully, they are spared some of the worst symptoms of COVID-19 if they do get it. But there's still a lot of symptoms when you're, hey, you got to always wear a mask. You got to make sure to put hand sanitizer on. You got to social distance. These can be new concepts for kids when they're going back to school. So, Andrew, you spoke to a lot of psychologists and health professionals on how to help manage the anxiety that kids have when they go back to school. What did they have to say about this? Yes, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty around being back to school. It's also going to look very different. And talking to a lot of psychologists and just other parents, 
Some children are, of course, worried about getting sick themselves or getting someone else sick, or they're worried about running afoul of some of the new rules about, you know, what if I forget my mask or what if my mask drops on the floor or what if a friend gets too close to me or I forget to wash my hands. So also some kids are already anxious about potentially missing basically what's going to happen if if school goes back online or if school is not back in person by the time the spring dance comes around or the piano recital or all of the things that they have been looking forward to that they missed out on perhaps last spring. So there's a lot going on. But the psychologist had some really great advice for parents on how to sort of help their kids manage their own anxiety. And the first thing was that parents need to manage their anxiety. So basically, you know, especially for younger children, you know, for parents to be able to sort of have this sense of calm and confidence to basically let kids know that they're okay, the world's okay, that mom and dad are in charge and are making good decisions. And that's true, you know, that you should sort of exude that air, even if you are this whirling turmoil and you're feeling all these doubts yourself. Well, they're Um, they're going to take their cues from you. So if you're putting out this- They will pick up on that. Yeah, they're going to pick up and they're going to be the same or, or even worse. One of the uh, psychologists you spoke to said they had a 10-second rule when you're talking to your kids or asking them questions. What what is that about? That's right. Sometimes parents can get ahead of kids and kind of project their own fears onto their children. And so the suggestion was to really focus on listen on what your kids are actually worried about and to respond to that, but also to, yes, have the 10-second rule, which is basically before you kind of swoop in to correct your children if they've got some misinformation or to soothe them and tell them everything's going to be okay, you know, basically you take that 10 seconds to just pause because often kids will then divulge more information or they might come up with the answer themselves. If they're worried about forgetting their mask, you know, maybe they'll think, oh, wait, you know, I can bring a backup mask too. So kids coming up with their own solutions helps them have a bit more agency and feel a bit more confident, you know, that they are capable of sort of handling this. Another suggestion was for parents and kids to focus on what the things they can't control. Some things are obviously out of our control, you know, what other people do, the infection rate in our particular town, but to really focus on practical things like wearing masks, washing hands, keeping distance from other people, and that if children have worries about what if grandma gets sick or whatever, to focus on those practical steps the family is taking to keep everybody safe. They also suggested, and this is probably more important for younger kids, it's kind of that age-old adage, practice makes perfect. So kind of practice the morning routines, get them in the mode of getting up early, getting ready for school, getting the backpacks ready, even if they might be doing the online learning. Just because, let's say, schools, and this has been the case a lot too, where there has been in-person instruction already started, then they had to send kids back because there was COVID outbreaks. So just kind of getting that routine and that practice so that they're ready for anything as it comes? You know, first of all, some of the most important things are to enforce good routines, like making sure your kids get adequate sleep, going to sleep late, not getting enough sleep is actually linked to anxiety in kids. Things like good nutrition, regular physical activity, those are things we should all be doing, but they're especially important when we're feeling a lot of anxiety. But yes, practicing, because there's so much uncertainty going on, Really prepare for the things you can't need to, the things that you can't. So if you if your child is going back to school in person or in a hybrid setting, they're going to have to wear a mask all day. Don't make the first day of school be the day that they you know first wear a mask for several hours. You know, 
one psychologist suggested that taking a friend to a library or some other sort of space like that, that is kind of school-like and practice, having a child practice wearing their mask, practice being with another child, but being socially distant. Another psychologist I talked to suggests getting a you know, small group of kids together and actually you know, coach them on some of the social situations they might deal with. Like what if a child pretends to cough on them or, you know, comes close to them and, you know, how they would advocate for themselves and protect themselves. Right. Another thing with whether they're doing in-person learning or virtual learning, you know, these worries about potential disappointments, you know, like, you know, baseball season or whatever, to really empathize with your kids and validate their feelings and then help them strategize ways to adapt, you know, like, so if there's not a baseball game, you know, how else can we get together safely with your buddies from the team? You know, another thing, as you mentioned, you know, some schools have gone back in person and they've already had to do learning online because of an outbreak. And so another suggestion was really prepare for things to change and do that in advance. So have your backup plan for whether it's a pod of kids in the backyard learning or another suggestion, which I thought was really interesting and, and made a lot of sense, was keep some activities virtual, even if you are planning to go back to school in person, because whether it's a you know, a math tutoring session or a piano lesson, that way there's some consistency. So a child doesn't feel like everything that they've been doing is now shut down again if things do have to change. Andrea Peterson, health reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. And in a really emotional, lengthy address to her staff, sort of took a bit of responsibility and sort of heartfeltly apologized for just the way things have played out. I think it's something that a lot of people have been waiting for from her for months. Joining us now is Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety. Thanks for joining us, Matt. My pleasure. wanted to update the ongoing story with the Ellen DeGeneres show. There was accusations of racial insensitivity, sexual misconduct, other problems at the workplace. A lot of people said it was a toxic environment and just really not a pleasant place to be at. There has been some changes. They ousted three top producers there and they elevated the DJ, the resident DJ, Stefan Twitch Boss, to be a co-executive producer there. So Matt, tell us about some of the changes that have been going on there at the Ellen DeGeneres show. Well, yesterday or Monday proved to be quite a dramatic day as Ellen finally addressed over 200 staffers who have worked for her about sort of the ongoing turmoil that has faced the show since the spring. Reports, as you said, of the toxic work environment, sexual misconduct, racism, and overall intimidation. And in a really emotional, lengthy address to her staff, sort of took a bit of responsibility and sort of heartfeltly apologized for just the way things have played out. I think it's something that a lot of people have been waiting for from her for months. But specifically, as you said, yes, three top producers have been fired, specifically the three that were accused of such misconduct in a July report from BuzzFeed. In addition, Ellen has installed a dedicated human resources executive to the show that does not report to show leadership. So this is an autonomous HR person that any Ellen staffer can go to with their grievances and be heard anonymously. And third, she sort of vowed to do better, basically, not only with increasing diversity and inclusion, as you mentioned, by hiring Twitch and upping him to co-executive producer, but also making sure, first and foremost, that her set is a place where people love to work. And I think it's long overdue. It seemed like a move that really needed to happen for Ellen herself 
to acknowledge all mm-hmm. of this. You know, there was a bunch of reports in BuzzFeed and in Variety that were talking about how toxic the workplace was. There was nothing leveled at Ellen herself. It, it did seem to be that it was other show leadership, these producers that got fired mm-hmm. and removed. But a lot of people really said, well, the buck stops with her anyways. It's her show. This is the environment that she helped create. So it was about time that she did answer. Tell us a little bit more about that call that she had with staff, because in that call, she admitted that she wasn't perfect. Report said that she was nearing tears. And that she also said that she knew that sometimes, you know, in this effort for it to be a well-oiled machine, that people weren't treated like human beings or people weren't given some common courtesy, at least. One of the most interesting things that she said on that call was that Ellen's been on the air for 17 years, and we forget that she did start somewhere. And she said that as the show and her own brand continued to grow and expand into this global thing that it is, she sort of lost place. You know, she said that she was never a CEO by vocation. She was just a comedian. And I think she sort of leaned into that as to maybe why some of these things have happened and why some of these things have maybe fallen to the cracks. But she then sort of said that she will step up and step in while those three producers are gone. She does have two legacy producers on her side, but she will actually now step into day-to-day roles too to take responsibility for not only the programming, but sort of the workplace in general. But yeah, she I thought it was so touching and, and, and sort of very interesting that she said that she trusted a set of people people to make decisions for her because she's not really a producer per se. She's just sort of a personality, but I think that'll change. And we talked about this a little bit the last time too. Well, a lot of these allegations were about the workplace and how these producers were handling other employees. There were rumors, there are have been other people saying that, you know, Ellen herself is difficult or she's kind of mean to mm-hmm. people. And she also kind of responded to that about this kind of quote unquote rumor that was going around saying that, hey, if you see Ellen in the hallway, don't even look her in the eye. She also kind of acknowledged that part of it. Yeah, she directly addressed those. And honestly, not even rumors. Several former guests of her show and contestants on her game show have come out and sort of spoken directly about that behavior, although Ellen seemed to fully deny it and was quite upset that these sort of accusations have had the legs they've had. But she did say that she'd like to know where they come from, but at the same, in the same breath, encourage staff to talk to her, look at her, and engage with her as much as possible. So where does the show go from here? You know, obviously in the mm-hmm. current environment, a lot of times people call it cancel culture. If there's any little bit of bad mm-hmm. news, sometimes things can really topple all over the place. Are these measures going to put them on the right pathway to maybe heal there at the workplace and, and continue on going. Obviously, as you mentioned, there's 18 seasons. They're, they're on, yeah. They've been on for so long. You know, it uh, employs a lot of people. I'm willing to bet a lot of people don't want to see this show go away. Yeah, I think that obviously everyone involved is quite invested in Ellen and, and not only as a business, but sort of as what she represents in culture. I think that it meant a lot that she sort of came down from the mountain and directly spoke to her staff and took some culpability. But I think this is only a first step. The show has a contract to go through season 19, so I I don't think the show will go anywhere. But I think it's more now a sort of battle of how genuine an effort she's willing to make to sort of maybe fix some of the misconceptions about her and sort of walk her talk when it comes to a really healthy functioning workplace and diversity and inclusion. Matt Donnelly, senior film writer at Variety. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.